Hey everybody, in today's Revenue Cycle Decoded podcast, we're going to talk about the new 2023 guidelines for evaluation and management codes and how they might impact your providers and your practice. But first, welcome to the Revenue Cycle Decoded podcast. My name is Gina Cornett and I help medical practice managers like you get the revenue cycle edge in your practice. I am passionate about helping you learn the skills you need to be a revenue cycle hero, advance your career, and improve your financial results. Let's dive right into the 2023 changes to the E&M guidelines. In 2021, the American Medical Association released changes to the guidelines for coding office and other outpatient evaluation and management services. The guidelines were intended to reduce the administrative burden placed on physicians, but because the guidelines were only changed for outpatient visits, physicians and other qualified healthcare providers were faced with managing two sets of guidelines if they saw patients in other settings, such as inpatient, observation, emergency department, or post-acute settings. Now for 2023, AMA's CPT editorial panel has approved revisions to the rest of the E&M code section, which will include E&M services provided in these other settings. According to the AMA, the revised guidelines include new descriptor times where relevant, revised interpretive guidelines for levels of medical decision-making, choice of medical decision-making or time to select the code level except for a few codes such as emergency department visits and cognitive impairment assessment which are not timed services, and they eliminated the use of history and exam to determine the code level. Instead, there is a requirement for a medically appropriate history and exam. So to review the changes that will take place, medical decision-making or time will be used to level the E&M code for E&M codes that have levels of services. Uh, and that includes all of these services, not just outpatient services. The provider must include a medically appropriate history and or physical exam when performed, but the history and exam will not be used to determine the level, and the provider determines the nature and extent of the history and or the physical exam. This guideline brings the E&M codes for hospital, inpatient, and other settings in line with the guidelines for outpatient E&M leveling and should, theoretically, lead to less time spent by the physician documenting history and exam and perhaps less cloning of information in the EMR, which is a practice that the physician should avoid anyway. Although, with outpatient documentation in the specialty in which I practice, I have not seen a significant decrease in cloned or pulled forward information. So definitely a topic for another day. Um, within each category or subcategory of E&M service based on MDM, medical decision making, or time, there are three to five levels of E&M services available, but you have to remember that you can't interchange levels among different categories or subcategories. 
So for example, a new patient, outpatient ENM 99202, is not the same thing as an established outpatient ENM, a 99212. So you have to read and understand the definition for each level in each category or subcategory. And the concept of MDM already does not apply to the outpatient visit code 99211, which is used most often for an incident to nurse visit, nor in 2023 will it apply to 99281, which is an emergency department visit that doesn't require the presence of a physician or other qualified healthcare professional. Medical decision-making levels are either straightforward, low, moderate, or high, and three elements define medical decision-making, the number and complexity of problems that are addressed during the encounter, the number and or complexity of data to be reviewed and analyzed, and the risk of complications and or morbidity or mortality of the patient management. So let's look at each of these three elements. First is the number and complexity of problems addressed, and this is pretty straightforward. Keep in mind that just because the documentation includes a laundry list of problems doesn't mean all the problems were addressed. So to get credit for this element, the physician or provider must document that he or she actually made a medical decision or discuss the problem with the patient or family member. So for example, if your patient presents with pain in the knee, just noting that the patient has COPD doesn't give the physician credit for that problem. The physician would need to document that he or she addressed, or in other words, evaluated or treated the COPD in the encounter, and that the COPD increased the amount and or the complexity of data to be reviewed and analyzed, or impacted the risk of complications, morbidity, or mortality of the patient management decision. And just stating that another healthcare professional is managing the condition also does not give your provider credit for addressing the condition, nor does making a referral without evaluation or consideration of treatment. For your patients who are hospital inpatients or observation patients, the problem addressed is the problem being managed or co-managed by your provider on the date of the encounter, and it's not necessarily the problem that led to the patient being admitted or led to um, a higher level of service within the hospital. The next element is the amount or complexity of data to be reviewed or analyzed. So data includes any medical records, tests, or other information that the physician must obtain, order, review, or analyze for the encounter, including information obtained from multiple sources. It can also include interprofessional communications, as long as those communications are not reported with a separate code, and inter 
interpretation of tests that are not reported separately with a separate code. If the physician orders a test, the review of the test result is not counted separately at the next encounter. When tests are ordered during an encounter, they are assumed uh, that the review of the test is included, and so they are counted during the encounter during which they are ordered. And you can only count a test in MDM if you're not going to separately report the test. For recurring orders like monthly prothrombin times, you would count each new result for the encounter in which it is analyzed. So for that first result, you would count it in the encounter in which it's ordered, and then when that prothrombin time is drawn the following month, you would count it at that month's encounter. When tests are ordered during an encounter, they are counted during that encounter. And you can only count a test for MDM again if you're not separately reporting that test. Um, panels are counted as a single test, and pulse oximetry is not considered a test that counts for MDM. So if you routinely do a pulse ox on all of your patients, you cannot count that in MDM. If the provider is ordering serial tests during the same encounter, for example, multiple blood glucose tests, the test only counts once. Ordering a test can include those considered but not selected after shared decision making. So for example, if a test would normally be performed, but due to the risk the physician decides not to order the test for the patient, it can be counted as long as the physician has documented his or her medical decision-making and that discussion with the patient or the patient's family or caregiver. Each unique test, order, or document is counted to meet a threshold number. The data element includes review of materials from a unique source, and a unique source is a physician or other qualified healthcare professional who is in a different group or a different specialty or subspecialty or is a unique entity, and review of all of the materials from each unique source counts as one element. Receiving information from an independent historian, for example, a family member, if the patient is a poor historian or unable to communicate or has dementia, is counted in the data element, as is discussion of management or test interpretation with an external physician or other qualified healthcare professional or appropriate source, as long as you are not separately reporting the discussion with another code. Other appropriate sources could include licensed practitioners, other physicians, facilities, organizational providers such as hospitals, nursing homes, or home health care agencies, social workers, counselors, parole officers, teachers, case managers, lawyers, etc. But appropriate sources do not include family or informal caregivers. Now, if the provider is including discussion with another healthcare professional in the data element, then he or she needs to document direct interactive exchange, for example, a phone call. And that means the exchange of information can't be filtered through case managers or other persons in the physician offices, and sending chart notes or written exchanges doesn't count. The third element that makes up medical decision making is the risk of complications and or morbidity or mortality of patient management. 
This includes the management options the physician selects and those that are considered but not selected after shared decision making with the patient or family. The physician should include a statement in the note regarding shared decision making by discussion of the treatment options with the patient or the family and discussing the patient or family's preferences and providing education and explaining the risks and benefits of the management options. If social determinants of health will impact the risk of complications or morbidity from the treatment decision, they should also be documented in the note. And this is where I see a really um, big opportunity for physicians and providers to be documenting these social docu uh, determinants of health that really can have an impact on the medical decision-making and on the risk of the treatment options. For example, if you are seeing a patient who is coming from a homeless environment or uh, has a family where alcoholism or other drug abuse is a significant issue, um, you may have a difficult time implementing the treatment decisions that the that the physician is making or the patient may not be able to implement those treatment decisions and so that definitely could increase the risk and so those um, those things should be documented in the note. The element of risk is probably the trickiest element because according to the AMA definitions of risk are based upon the usual behavior and thought processes of a physician or other qualified healthcare professional in the same specialty. Now to qualify for a particular level of MDM, two of the three elements for that level must be met or exceeded. AMA has created a table to help physicians and coders in selecting the correct level of MDM and in that same document the AMA has provided a list of definitions to clarify the terms in the table and so I will link to the guidelines where you can find this table and the definitions um, on the AMA site and I'll link that in the show notes. So E&Ms can also be leveled using time and for outpatient visits beginning in 2021 and now for all face-to-face E&M services that include levels with the exception of emergency department services, it's no longer necessary that the physician include a statement that counseling and coordination of care made up 50% of the visit in order to count time. That statement's no longer needed because time now will include all face-to-face -face time as well as non-face-to-face -face time. In the outpatient office, if the provider's time is spent supervising clinical staff who perform the face-to-face -face services of the encounter, then the guidelines instruct to use CPT code 99211. So time is the total time on the date of the encounter and includes both face-to-face -face time with the patient and or the family or caregiver and non-face-to-face -face time which is personally spent by the provider on the day of the encounter performing activities which are typically performed by the provider. So it doesn't include time that's normally performed by your clinical staff or uh, time that's spent performing other separately reported activities such as procedures.
In the case of split visits between a physician and another qualified healthcare provider, the time spent by each is summed to define the total time. And if the physician and the other provider spend time discussing the case, then that time will only be counted once. AMA provides tables with the time ranges for each level. And as with the 2021 guidelines, there are also prolonged service codes for reporting time that exceeds the maximum range. And those codes are also included in the document linked in the show notes. So as, uh, as in 2021, CMS created its own prolonged service codes for outpatient visits, and we anticipate it will be the same for the 2023 guidelines. Other changes in the guidelines include deletion of the Hospital Observation Services e and codes 99217 through 99220. Instead, Observation Services will be included in the initial hospital care codes 99221 through 99223, subsequent hospital care codes 99231 through 99233, Observation or inpatient hospital care, 99234 through 99236, and hospital discharge, 99238 through 99239 codes. The consultation EM codes 99241 and 99251 will be deleted to align the four levels of MDM. And consultations, uh, ENM codes 99242 through 99245 and 99252 through 99255 and the guidelines are revised to remove confusing definitions and the definition of transfer of care has been deleted. Emergency Department Services Codes 99281 through 99285 and guidelines are revised. And note again that time cannot be used to level Emergency Department E&M services. Nursing Facility Service E&M Code 99318 is deleted. And all other nursing facility E&M codes and guidelines are revised to reflect that the leveling will be based on medical decision-making or time. And also note that a new definition of multiple morbidities requiring intensive management is considered at the high-level MDM of initial nursing facility care. Domiciliary, rest home, and custodial care services section in the CPT manual is deleted, and e and codes 99324 through 99238, um, 99334 through 99337, 99339, and 99340, and home and residence services e and code 99343 are all deleted. These services are merged now with the existing home visit codes. Home and resident service E&M codes 99341, 99342, 99344, 99345, 9347 through 99350, and the guidelines are revised, again to reflect leveling based on medical decision making or time. 
and prolonged services E&M codes 99345 through 99347 are deleted. These services will now be reported either with the office prolonged service code 99417, which we got in 2021, or with the new prolonged service E&M code 993XO, which will be used with inpatient observation and nursing facility services. So to sum up, if your physicians and providers work primarily in the outpatient world, they should already be familiar with the 2021 revised guidelines. And I found in my work that with the introduction of the new guidelines in 2021, E&M levels dipped temporarily as physicians and providers learned the new guidelines, but as they received education and their documentation of their medical decision-making improved, E&M levels came back up to about where they were previously and actually have improved uh, somewhat. So if your providers are uh, seeing patients in the hospital or other settings, um, the new guidelines should be welcome news. The new guidelines should make coding and billing of E&M services in your practice easier, especially if you've already implemented the 2021 guidelines, uh, because they'll mean that we will be using one set of guidelines rather than trying to manage and code for two different sets. And I have found um, that the 2021 guidelines for outpatient visits seem to be more intuitive and easier to teach to physicians and easier for physicians to understand um, and to implement in a practical way. So remember, these codes will go into effect January 1st of 2023, and to be successful in being ready for the implementation, it's going to be important for practice managers and coders to read up on the new guidelines. I highly recommend to read through the resource document, which I am listing. It is located on the AMA site, and it, the link is in the show notes and put an education plan in place for your physicians. Um, work with your coders, um, and if you have a clinical documentation improvement specialist in your practice um, or in your facility, work with them as well to put together an education plan for your physicians and providers. A great place to start is directing your physicians to AMA's free online webinar on the changes and the benefits and how it's going to impact the provider's work. And I'll link that also in the show notes. If your providers watch that webinar, uh, I believe it does receive CME credit. So I would love to hear your take on the new guidelines, what you're going to be doing to implement the guidelines and how you feel they may impact your physicians and your practice. You can find me on Facebook on the Revenue Cycle Decoded page or the Revenue Cycle Decoded group, or you can find me on LinkedIn on Revenue Cycle for Healthcare Practice Managers. If you just look for those groups, pop in and let me know uh, how you think this the new guidelines are going to impact your providers and what you are doing to educate them for the changes. I also want to invite you to my weekly webinar, Revenue Cycle 101, 
for the medical practice manager where we walk through the steps of the revenue cycle, talk about what can go wrong at each step, and I give you some practical actions you can take to improve your cash flow, your days in accounts receivable, and your profitability. This webinar is held every Wednesday from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It's a lunch and learn, or if you're on the West Coast or Mountain Time, it may be breakfast and learn for you. Um, it's a great webinar, and I'm certain you will find it valuable. You can go to revenuecycledecoded.com, find the link to sign up. Also, I will be hosting a paid workshop, um, Front End Denials Decoded, to help practice managers understand their denials and claims rejections that are caused by faulty processes in front end revenue cycle and what to do about them. And we won't just be talking about the claims rejections and denials themselves, but we'll also be talking about how to track and trend those rejections and denials and how to identify the root cause and put a performance improvement plan into action using a team approach. It's a two hour class. The next one will be held August 14th, 2022 from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern time over Zoom. Only 25 people uh, can be registered in this class because I'm gonna be able to devote time to every person. Um, but the cost is $147. If you would like to sign up for the next workshop, you can go again to revenuecycledecoded.com and find the link to sign up. With that, I want to thank you for joining me on today's podcast. I look forward to serving you on future podcasts. And until next time, make every day count. Thank you.